This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 54. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles that are provided for you here at the center of each aisle. You can flag somebody down, they'll pass one over to you. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 54. Uh, continuing in this, this series we're in right now through the book of Isaiah. Where we are in our series is we're trying to, we're trying to identify what it is that God has done to solve the problem of Israel's sin and ultimately our sin as well. Isaiah is a, is a lot about judgment and sin, but it is even more about what God has done to get rid of the problem of sin. What we've seen so far in this part of our, of our series in Isaiah is, is that God has solved the problem of our sin through a person. We've been introduced to this character who's going to be the king and also the servant who's going to die, but through dying he's going to come to reign. And we've been trying to unpack the mystery that that is especially in Isaiah 53. Now we come to Isaiah 54. And from here, through the end of the book, the main theme is unpacking what God is able to give us because of the work of this figure we've been, unpa- we've been trying to, to understand better. Because the servant has been successful, this new world is possible. And Isaiah 54 and following describe that world to us, beginning today. The text, in other words, is a response to the news of the servant's suffering and his final victory. And it's a call to celebration, a call to worship, because a fundamentally new world is brought in because the servant has died and the servant is risen. It gets to the heart, in other words, of what the Bible says God's love is like and what it means for us. I mentioned the text as a call to worship. The first verse in the chapter calls for singing. Sing, O barren one, and break forth into singing and cry aloud. It's a celebration because of this great victory that's been won in chapter 53. The imagery that I've had in my mind as I've, as I've been reading through it this week is, is of the, uh, the video and the photos of, of what America looked like on VJ Day back in World War II, the end of World War II, when the, when the, the word of victory over Japan hits the presses and the end of this war that had, that had killed so many people around the world. Have you guys seen these photos or these videos? It's just mass hysteria of the best sort. In places like, like from, from places like New York City all the way to the smallest of towns, people rush to whatever public space they could get to and they're just, they're hugging each other and they're throwing confetti and they're having parades and it's just a sea of humanity and, and the images of of these soldiers coming home in San Francisco. Those are some of my favorite videos. They're they're, they're rolling into that port from from the Pacific Theater. And the whole thing is just a sea of people screaming at them, celebrating, hugging them, waving signs, waving flags, whatever. It's this party, right? The war is over. The battle is won. And the new world starts now. That's what they thought in their own naivety to some extent. This battle has been won and a, and, a, and a new world actually has come into be. This is, this is the message of the rest of this book. What is that new world going to look like? What does this new world mean for us? It's a call to celebration. And we want to leave celebrating today. We want to leave celebrating because the promise of this text is that God's grace redefi- redefines everything. God's grace redefines everything. And it's as true for us today as it was for Israel then. Two steps for us today. Really simple. So simple it probably sounds obvious. God's grace can reframe your past 
That's the first half of our text this morning. And God's grace can secure your future. That's the second half of our text this morning. If you found Isaiah 54, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from it? I'm going I'm to read the first ten verses of Isaiah 54. This is the word of the Lord. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will be ashamed. You will not be ashamed, excuse me. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that you will not, that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is God's word. You can be seated. The opening image here, the reason for celebration, is that because of what the servant has accomplished, God's grace can reframe your past. And these first verses give us two before and after images. Now I want to make sure that we both we understand both of these images, where they're coming from, why they're why they why they're effective. And then I want to drill down into those images and try to drive them into into our time and place here today. I'm going to come at each image first. The first one is in verses 1 to 3. Um, and it's the image of barrenness. It's one that's used pretty often in, in the Old Testament in particular for Israel's spiritual condition. The barrenness, the inability to conceive children, has been one of the fundamental human sorrows throughout all of time. But it was especially, especially meaningful in the time that the Old Testament was written because children were viewed in a different way than they are today. In some sense, they were your honor or your shame, depending on how many you had. In a, very, in a strictly economic sense, children were the, the reason you could hope that in the future you wouldn't be destitute and die in your, in your old age. Because your children were going to be your retirement plan. They were your social security. To be barren was to be, especially in Israel, where the, where the promises made to Israel were that they were going to have this huge people, this, that they were going to be this, this new kingdom, that, that they were going to have children. To be barren in Israel had an even, an even deeper layer of sorrow to it. And it becomes one of the most often used images 
for Israel's spiritual condition because they were called by God to to be the means or the the, the instrument that God would use to bless everybody in the world. All the nations, as far as the end of the earth, were going to be blessed through Israel and what God would do through them. And that was pictured through the seed of Abraham. That was the language, the same language that's, that's used here in these verses. At the very beginning of Israel's history, it was used as, as a way of understanding what God was going to do through Israel. And they had completely failed in their mission. They had been fruitless. They had been barren. And they had been punished because of it. Now it's too, don't, don't, do not miss this. It is to the barren that the call of singing comes directly. Not to those who overcame their barrenness and became fruitful spiritually, but to those who were even then fruitless. They will sing because God will give them supernatural fruit. That's the point of verses 1 to 3. You're going to need a bigger place. That's the imagery. Enlarge your tent, right? Stretch out those curtains. You better fasten the stakes because this place is going to be busting at the seams. God is going to fill it up with life that is only explicable because he has given it. It's a supernatural before and after story from lifelessness to abundant life because God creates life where there is none. That's the first image. The second one comes to us in verse 4. Now here he switches from the, the imagery of children to the imagery of, of marriage and the payoff of this new marriage to your maker is that it changes the shame of your youth. That's what verse 4 says. Fear not. You won't be ashamed. Don't be confounded for you're not going to be disgraced. In fact, you're going to forget the shame of your youth. Don't miss that. He's saying, he's not telling them, don't be ashamed. You've got nothing to be ashamed about. Right? You're, you're good. He's saying, you're going to forget the shame that is rightfully yours because I am going to redefine who you are. That's the point of verse 4. God won't let their guilt and their shame be the end of their story. So much so that they will forget who they were. And verse 5 gives the reason that this new life is possible and that this new freedom from shame is possible. The reason that it all works, what it hangs on, is verse 5. It starts with the word for, which is the logical cue to us. Now we're about to get a justifying reason here. This is how it's possible. For... Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And don't miss what this means. It means that the reason there's supernatural fruit for the barren, the reason there's a removal of shame from the guilty, is that they have been given a new identity. They have been married to the one who made them. Israel's past, in other words, is not going to define her Because the one who made her has the power to remake her. To redefine who she is. Because she's identified now as the bride of this husband in particular. All of her past takes on a new shape. I've been trying to think of some good analogies for how to make this this click. One that gets us a little ways is, is how different it is. How, how, how your identity is shaped by your connections. How different we perceive, say, a news article. If it's written by, you know, an independent blogger in this mom's basement, right, on his own blog, 
that has, you know, 50 followers and, and what we think about someone who gets a feature in the New York Times Sunday Review right there on the front page for the world to see. Well, it's, it's partly his connection to the Times that gives that, that reporter his cred. The same reporter writing for the blog is probably not going to be seen in the same light because your identity is shaped by who you're connected to. Even better, I, I used this one a couple weeks back. This one gets even closer, I think, at the, the significance of, of how marriage to the one who made you can change how you understand your past because it has, it has to do with marriage. I, I've had uh, several friends who've had uh, long-standing uh, romantic relationships like in high school or maybe in early college, maybe even for several years, and they really take this relationship into who they are and then it falls apart and they're crushed by it, right? There is genuine sorrow there. That sorrow doesn't go away. It's not insignificant just because it was you know, young love, teenage love or whatever. It's real. And, it, and in a sense, comes to define them for a time. But these friends have gone on to, to be married to people who were perfectly suited to them in, in, in the way that anyone is suited for anyone. To, to marriages that are, that are happy and fulfilling. And it would be crazy if they said that what defines them is not this marriage to this person that, 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 that they're bound to now, that they get life from, that is engaging and, and source of happiness and joy. But I'm really defined by that, my high school sweetheart's crushing of my soul, right? It just doesn't work that way. Your past takes on a new light. It's reframed because of this new relationship that has entered into it, one that's bigger, that's more life-shaping, that really doesn't make the past go away, but changes how you look at it. I think that's what's, what's being described for us here. Their new identity as married to the one who made them and who has the power to make them new. That new identity reframes their empty, their fruitless, their sinful and rebellious past it makes it so that they may as well forget the shame of their youth. That's how irrelevant that shame is. One of the ways that the Bible often pictures this is through the change of a name. Name is, is the way that the, the Old Testament often refers to your identity. Like, what, what's your name? Not, not literally like your given name. There's some connection there. It's more like, what's your reputation? What are you known for? And one of the ways that... that that this picture of God redeeming Israel by changing who they are is in the change of a name. A couple chapters later, I think this is a great, a great uh, sort of outside text to help us understand what's going on in chapter 54. I'm just going to read it for you. This is chapter 62. This is verses 2 through 4 of chapter 62. And here, here's what's going on in chapter, chapter 54, verse 5. There's another way of putting the exact same thing. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. You get that? You are the Lord's crown. You are what he celebrates, what he is proud of, what symbolizes his power and authority. A royal diadem in the hand of your God. And here's the kicker. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. Empty, fruitless, barren. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you. 
and your land shall be married. I hope it's clear enough. The promise here is that because of what the servant has done, chapter 53, Israel is not who they were. And the promise comes straight from Israel through Jesus to us with the promise that because of what Jesus has done, because he died the death that we should have died, and because he has risen now once and for all to reign forever, we are not who we were. We are who God declares us to be. Now, I want to park here for a minute. I want to make sure that you get the full significance of this. Unpack it a little bit more. Here's another way of coming at it. One of the things we've said before uh, in, in our series in Isaiah is that the Bible is really realistic about what's wrong with humans. And we spent like a full month unpacking what Isaiah has to say about what's wrong with us. Um, we're sort of laid out on the couch in, the, in the, the office of the psychiatrist that is Isaiah and he is unpacking our souls and our, and our, our brains and all of our neuroses. And we've, we've done that. One of the things that we've said about the, the way the Bible talks about human problems is that it's, it's really uh, realistic in that it doesn't try to isolate just our sin or just our pain and sorrow as what's wrong with us. In, but it, it sees us as, as, as fundamentally guilty of, of sin and rebellion against God, but also victims of the pain that comes from the abuse of other people, of the, the pain and disappointment that comes from you know, experiencing the world as it is and all of its brokenness, that we are, we are full, we are weighed down by both shame and sorrow. And any solution to our problem has got to address both of those things. It's got to take the shame from our sin off of us, but it's also got to free us from the pain of, of what's happened to us. We talked about how the Bible's solution to our problems gets at both of those things, and I think this text points us to that truth again. God is, is able to free us from being defined by the shame and the sorrow that's in our past. So we all, all of us, everyone, everyone sitting here, in, in one way or another, has known sorrow and pain. And every single one of you has known shame and guilt. The question that we all have to ask or, and then answer is what are we going to do in light of the things in our past that cause us shame and cause us sorrow? How do we face life in light of being who we are, humans weighed down, carrying these things around our backs. It strikes me that we've got two options apart from Jesus, neither of which is very good, and one option that's possible because of the message of Isaiah 54. One option that is the reason Jesus came to us. Now here's option one. One, thing we could, one way we could account for our sorrow and our shame is we could let it define who we are. We could live in it. We could go deeper and deeper into it, trying to unpack more and further and further layers of it. We could wallow in it to an extent, sort of play it on a loop in our heads. We could, we could give in to the hopelessness and despair that comes natural. And we can, if we go with this option, be alienated from everybody in our lives. Because our sorrows tend to alienate us from other people who haven't experienced the exact pain that we have. We, we, we tell ourselves that they can't get me. And that therefore I'm, I'm stuck here alone, experiencing a pain that no one else understands. So alien, our pain alienates us. But our shame alienates us in a different way. Our shame tells us we can't let someone know who we really are. Because if they knew, they wouldn't want anything to do with us. And so whether it's sorrow or shame, option one is hopeless 
and it alienates us from everyone else and it, and it takes God out of the picture. It makes him threatening or irrelevant, one of the two. It's not a good option. Option two, I think this is probably the most common option that we pursue. Uh, I, I, I certainly think it's the most popular sort of in a, a pop culture sense of how to deal with, with pain and, and shame is you can try to write it, rise above it. You can try to write a new ending to your story. You try to take charge of your life and make it something other than what it is. And, and who doesn't love a good comeback story, right? We're all drawn in, but into this. We love the, the rags to riches tales. We love the, the Lance Armstrong story of cancer to uh, drug-induced superhuman <laughs> phenom. We love a good triumph. And we like to think of ourselves as being able to pull this option off because it's very self-affirming. What it tells us is that we can be the change we want to see in our lives. That if we hunker down with more self, with more sort of sheer willpower, we can overcome the things that have held us back. We are the hero of this sort of story. And we like that. But this is risky. This is a risky option. I I see three problems here, especially. If we, try to, if we try to address the pain and the shame in our past by writing a new future for ourselves, rising above it, there are three problems. One, it's risky because you're resting on precisely the same resources that got you into trouble in the first place. The same resources that couldn't keep you from getting hurt, the same resources that couldn't keep you from doing something you now wish you hadn't done. Why in the world... Do you believe that things will be different this time? Ultimately, if you go with option two, you're still believing that you are what you do. You are what you experience. You are your pain or your success. you You are your shame. It's a dead end. And... A second problem here is that it's still alienating. Just like option one, it can alienate you from others too. Because if you think you're in charge of your own recovery, that it all rests on you, then what it's going to make you want to do is deflect blame for anything new bad that happens to you because you need to be good. You need to be strong and powerful. And so anything that's holding you back as a defense mechanism, you've got to deflect it onto someone else. You can't face up to new failures that you might encounter. And it's alienating because it can make you even more sensitive to the treatment of other people towards you. It makes you even more want to protect yourself and not let yourself get hurt again the way you were or, or not let yourself be drawn into failure by other people. And, and, so, and so you build walls around yourself. You sense, I think all of us intuitively sense that we are not powerful enough to keep ourselves from failing or being hurt. And so it makes us defensive and isolated. Option two ends in the same place that option one does. And then there's option three, and this is the message of Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 is realistic. It calls Israel the, the barren one, and it acknowledges the shame of her youth. It is honest about who Israel was, but it is joyously optimistic about who Israel is because they're not who they were. They have been redefined by the grace of God. 
language in verse 4 I think is so, it's so timeless. You will not remember the shame of your youth. That is so counterintuitive to the way we process guilt and pain, I think. We want to go further into it. We want to remember it better than we have. We want, to, we want to sort of unpack it and understand it. And that can be good. That can be helpful and therapeutic. But the ultimate end game is to forget it. Not as if it didn't happen, but to think of it as something that doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't define us anymore because we are defined now by who God says we are. We are defined now by who the servant has made us to be. That's the message of, of this chapter. In fact... Anything we know about our, our previous self, the only, the only reason it's worth talking about and the only reason we can, we can talk about it without being discouraged by it is that the worse we were, the better God's grace now appears. Everything that was true about our past is just this black canvas on which the colors of God's grace scream to us in their vividness. They are in HD because of the past that each of us has now left behind. They are, they are reasons to glorify God, not to wallow in shame or to be debilitated by pain. We don't have to be afraid of who we were because who we were is not who we are. And that is true not because we cleaned our act up, but because God declared it to be true. It's true because Jesus has done what he came to do. Now, if you struggle to believe this promise, in, in other words, if... If, you, if you're still weighed down by guilt, if that is what you wake up to each morning, or if, if it's your pain, your sorrow, what's been done to you that you can't seem to rise above, then the question I, I would love for you to think on, to take home with you and just let percolate in you is, is what is it that is keeping me from offloading my shame and my sorrow onto the servant who came to carry them for me? Why is it that I'm unwilling to let this burden fall off? Could it be that somebody else's approval matters more to you than God's approval? Maybe your unbelief in this, in, in this arena stems from the fact that you don't see yourself as doubting that God favors you you're just more interested in loving yourself or in having your, your parents approve of you or having your friends or your coworkers approve of you or your spouse approve of you. And that if you don't have their approval, God's approval, your marriage to him, the fact that your maker is your husband just sort of falls into the distance, it fades into the background. It's not as important to you as the approval of someone else. If so, if so, then you've got to pray through that. That's a dead end. There's no freedom in it. Because you cannot control the approval of other people. And insofar as you run to it, you run away from the grace of God. You bow down at the altar of a false God who will leave you helpless. Or maybe, maybe it's that you want to be the hero of your own story. And I really want you to think about this one. As I don't think any of us intuitively recognize it when this is true, but I think all of us are more susceptible to this than anything else. We're not really interested in any recovery that we aren't responsible for. We love the rags to riches tale, and we want to be the reason. But to accept an identity from God, to accept His redefinition of who you are, on the terms of Isaiah 54 
is to acknowledge that he gives life where there isn't any. That what you bring to the table is barrenness. And God gives life. That he gives joy and gladness where there was only shame and sorrow. It's to acknowledge that you bring nothing but brokenness. That, that this, the only true and lasting recovery, that this recovery comes not from learning to love yourself, comes not from being better at protecting yourself than you were before, but from owning and loving whose God, who God's grace declares you to be. God is the only hero of this story. Are you okay with that? There's freedom when you accept it. God's grace can, can reframe your past. The second half of the chapter promises us that God's grace can secure your future. And it's really tied, this promise is so closely tied to the first. Because if God's grace can reframe your past, can tell you you are not who you were, if it's by God's grace only and doesn't depend on anything you've done to change yourself, if you're willing to accept that freedom, then what you're accepting is an inheritance you can't mess up. An inheritance that depends on him and what he gives to you and not on anything that you're required to produce for yourself. And if it comes from him, if your maker the one who is the Lord of the universe is also your husband, then there is nothing in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can affect your standing before him. Your future is secure, and it's secured by a covenant. That's where we're headed in this point. Um, one, of the, one of the glorious distinctives of Christianity is that God's offer of a salvation that you don't deserve and that you can't earn takes you off of the treadmill of trying to prove yourself. It takes you off the knife edge of wondering whether you can stay good enough once you've become good enough, of whether you can hold it all together. It's, it comes with a promise of a future that no one else can offer you, one that's secure because it's given to you, not earned by you. God has made a future, in other words, that even Israel, that even you can't destroy. I want to unpack it, but I want to walk us through it in the steps that this chapter takes us through. And that means going back to a, a little bit in the story. Verse 6 begin, comes back to this marriage analogy. It's one, of, it's one of the Old Testament's favorite analogies for Israel's unfaithfulness to God. It's unfaithfulness in a covenant of marriage. Uh, Israel's uh, betrayal of God and their, and their commitment to him in favor of other options. That's the imagery of verse 6. The Lord has called you like a wife deserted, grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off. Don't, don't be distracted by the English translation here that makes it sound like, like, like the husband is at fault here and he's just getting rid of a wife that he's tired of. That's not what's intended here, even though it kind of comes across that way. It's, it's, it's clear in the original and the context of the whole story that, that Israel has gone away from the one who had made a covenant with her. She's abandoned him. And for a time, God's anger has been shown. References to the exile where God punishes his people, sends them out of the land and everything that they'd known as a way of purging them. It's depicting Israel's sin as a form of adultery. It's one of the Bible's most common images. 
In fact, there's a graphic word that's often used for Israel. It's used in Isaiah, like in verse 121, or chapter 1, verse 21. Israel is described as a whore. That is how Israel is referred to over and over again through the Old Testament. They, they went after Assyria as if they were more able to provide than God. They went after the gods of the nations as if those gods would be more responsive to their needs, more trustworthy than God himself. Hosea is a great parallel to what Isaiah is talking about now. If you want something to read that's, that's a good follow-up to what we're talking about now, go read the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. It's written around the same time as Isaiah. uses the same imagery to understand Israel's sin and what God will do to make up for it. The point is that Israel turned away from God. He, they didn't believe he could deliver. They were bored with him. They were enticed by the surface beauty of others. They went after him for the same reasons that, that affect so many marriages when infidelity enters the picture. And it's what led to this overflowing anger for a time, verses 7 and 8. And, and just, to, just to sort of comment on this phase of the story, I think our sense of justice in stories of infidelity, like, like it's a common plot line, right, in books and in TV shows and in movies, and our sense of justice is we want to see the one who was spurned, the one who was cheated on, find love somewhere else, Right? find a new and better relationship that's even more fulfilling and we want to see the person who's guilty sort of get what's coming to them. That's that's the instinct that's in us because we are all self-righteous and we would like to think that we're better than than, and above the, the actions that we see on the screen. We want to see them get what they deserve. And it looks like that's what's happening to Israel, right? She's gone after these other lovers and they have left her empty and hopeless They've left her without anything that she had formerly relied on. They got what they deserved. But that is not the end of the story. God wants his wife back. Verse 6 begins with a call into exile, into barrenness and brokenness. God calls you back to himself because he's not willing to let Israel's sin be the final word on his relationship to them. And then in verses 9 and 10, his response, get this, his response to Israel's abandonment of him is to promise by a covenant that binds him to them that he will never abandon them. His response is the exact opposite of what they've done to him. They abandon him, he promises he will never abandon them. And in fact, what we know, because we know the whole story, is that it took him abandoning his son to promise that he would never abandon the ones who had abandoned him. What kind of love is this? Jesus is God himself come into the world to win back the wife that had left him. And it means him being cut off from the one who was his joy and delight. And he does it so that he can make a covenant with us to promise God will never leave us or forsake us. That the mountains and the hills will sooner be removed than his steadfast love over us. Who does that? The Holy One of Israel does that. That's verses 9 and 10. Don't miss the sequence. There is glory here if the Spirit helps us to see it. Step one, God freely marries a people who had nothing he didn't give to them. He pledges himself and his undying devotion to them by a covenant. That's step one. He promises everything they're going to need for security and flourishing. Step two is this people decide he's not enough. They abandon him for greener pastures, for gods they can see and control. Step three is that God refuses to let this abandonment be the end of his relationship with him. He refuses to let his wife stay in her shame 
And he resolves to win her back. And in Jesus, who is the faithful son, who is the servant, he chooses to be abandoned himself. He cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that he can promise never to abandon us. So that he can attach to us a covenant of peace. Verse 9 and 10 point us to. It's language straight out of Isaiah 53. The chastisement poured out on the servant has given us peace. And this covenant is, the, is what that peace involves. A promise that this peace will never be shaken. Now, the way I frame this point is as the security of your future, right? God's grace promises you a secure future. And here's why I framed it that way. God's covenant of peace with you is a word of promise that can't change because it's rooted in the peace that the servant has won for you by his death. Your future doesn't depend on your performance, in other words. It, it depends now on the unchanging and the unimpeachable grace of God. He knows, get this, get, remember the story and know that everything true about Israel is true of you as well. God knows everything you have done. He knows your past backwards and forwards. He's seen it all. And he still has come into this world to win you back. So that means there is nothing you could do in your future that could take his love away from you. You can't surprise him by the depths of your depravity. He knows it. He has lived it and experienced it on the cross. And he has taken it off of your shoulders where it doesn't define you anymore. So there is nothing you can do to mess up this future. Not even you. Not even Israel. Not any of us. Your future is secure because it doesn't depend on you. He wants you not because you're worth it. You know, we, want, we want him to want us because we're worth it. But that's a terrible burden to bear because what happens when you're not worth it anymore? What happens when you change or when you mess up? Then his love goes away. But God doesn't love you because you're worth it. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. And that is the glory that's in it. If God loved us because we were lovable, then that would be, that would be glorious for us, wouldn't it? We would be the reason that we're, love, that, that we're loved by God. God loves you for nothing to do with you other than the fact that he has set his love on you. That glorifies him and it makes us secure. There's freedom in it. There's not glory in it for us, but there's freedom in it. There is joy and peace and hope in it. And it is true. It's true. So believe it. Father, help us to believe what's hard for us to believe. take our fixation from what we have done and what's been done to us to what Jesus has done once and for all. Help us to offload the burdens we carry around and to embrace with joy the promise of a new identity, of a marriage to the one who made us. Our prayer is that you would help us to believe the gospel. And we make this prayer to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.